At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It is a reality. It is something that happens. And we don't want to believe that it can happen. But my story is proof. These things happen, and I am not the only one. There are many Brenda Tracy's out there. And we need to start having a conversation about these things are happening because people don't want to think they happen. And so it's easy to disbelieve the survivor because you don't want to believe that people we know or, you know, good kids, good athletes would do these things. But it's happening. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we talk to Brenda Tracy, the nation's leading advocate in the fight against sexual assault in the world of college sports. Ms. Tracy travels the country speaking to coaches and student-athletes across the sports world and talks about her own experiences as someone who is sexually assaulted by a football team. She is raw, real, and she is making a difference, and honestly, I couldn't think of a better week with which to raise her signal for all of you, my listeners. Also, this week I got some choice words about Eric Reed's return to the NFL. And I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards. But first, let's go to Brenda Tracy. And I want to put a trigger warning on this. This could be uncomfortable for folks, but Brenda Tracy tells it like it is. Brenda Tracy, um, my listeners who are unfamiliar, can you tell your story, please? Yeah. Um, so in 1998, as a young woman, I was dating a Oregon State football player. And I went uh, one night with my best friend. We went to her boyfriend's um, apartment, who was also a football player. And there were a couple other guys there. It wasn't a party. It was just kind of a, a gathering of a few people. But that night, um, I was given an alcoholic beverage, which I believe was drugged. Um, and then I was in and out of consciousness after drinking about four ounces of my mixed drink, um, in and out of consciousness for about six hours. And during that time I was sexually assaulted by four men. Um, the next morning I went and I got a rape kit done. I went and I reported to the police and I thought that, you know, I I thought I was doing everything that a good victim was supposed to do to, to receive justice. But because two of the players, uh, played for Oregon state university and one of them was going to Cal it became a media story. And the first thing that happened was my society, uh, or my community, I'm sorry, uh, turned on me. They called me a liar. And why is she doing this? Why is she trying to ruin their lives? Who is she? Um, so I was very surprised by that because I was the victim of a crime and I didn't understand why so many people were so angry with me immediately. Um, I also started receiving death threats. Um, if, you know, if I was to move forward with prosecution, Friends, family, people turned on me, um, blamed me, and I kind of lost everyone in my life, really, except for, you know, my parents. Um, And then the DA told me at the time I didn't have a good case. So the DA said, said, he said, she said, you probably won't win. Um, Are you sure you want to do this? And so given that information, I said, well, then no, I don't want to go through a trial if I can't win. And so I dropped the charges. 
And that was a news story because people then said, see, we told you she's a liar because if she was really raped, she would have prosecuted. Um, and then I reported to the school. I was not a student in Oregon State, but I reported because I wanted them to know what happened to me. And I didn't want it to happen to anyone else. They said they would handle it in-house and that they took it very seriously. Um, and then I kind of thought I would just move on with my life from there. But then another article would come out in the media and that was uh, the media interviewing coach Mike Riley. Um, he was the coach at the time and he was asked about his players being arrested. They spent one night in jail and then the charges being dropped. And his comment was, these are good guys that just made a bad choice. And he gave him a one game suspension. So I read that as the victim and was very hurt by those words. But, you know, through this entire process, I was Jane Doe. So I didn't have a voice. I couldn't say anything. I couldn't defend myself. And I didn't want more people to know it was me because I was already enduring so much backlash in the first place. Um, so I just kind of took it and I didn't say anything. And then I, I tried to move on with my life after that. I tried to, you know, I became a nurse um, and, and did my best to, to get over it. But it, it was I didn't. <laughs> I basically spent the next 16 years dealing with um, depression. I had a borderline eating disorder, PTSD, um, suicidal, r really suicidal for 16 years. Um, and it, it was just very, very hard. And then in 2014, I decided to share my story. I decided to go public in 2014. Um, and that was uh, kind of a, a huge turning point in my life, really. Um, this time people believed me and it was a major turning point. Why 2014? Why not earlier, later? What was it about that year? Yeah, so you know what ended up happening is I turned 40 that year. And I don't know if all 40-year-olds do this, but I just kind of had a moment where I looked in the mirror and I was like, Brenda, is this what you're going to do for the rest of your life? Because I had spent 16 years hating myself to the point that I woke up every day really just wanting to die. I just did not understand how anybody could ever – and I was single all this time, so – I didn't understand how anybody could ever want to be with me or love me or respect me once they found out what happened to me. I just, I felt damaged beyond any type of repair. And I just woke up every day wanting to die, hating myself. And I thought, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. How, how can I fix this? And so I started going to counseling. Um, and while I was in counseling, we started talking about what happened in Corvallis and my gang rape. And I wanted to know more about what happened to the men at Oregon state because I only knew about the one game suspension, but the school said they were going to handle it. So I called the school and the school didn't want to tell me anything. They actually, I remember my phone call with someone there and they said, are you, why do you want this information? Are you planning to litigate? So they were kind of hostile with me and they didn't want to talk to me. And so I went to a lawyer and asked what my rights were. And they said, you don't really have any. So then I was trying to figure out, well, how am I going to find closure if nobody wants to talk to me? Like I'm just in therapy trying to get better. And that was when I thought about Coach Riley because I really kind of hated him over those years for what he said about me. And he was actually at Oregon State again in 2014. He just happened to be like down the freeway from me. And I thought, you know what, maybe I could find some sort of healing or closure through him. And so just really in a desperate attempt to try to find healing, um, I thought about him and I thought maybe I'd write him a letter. Um, but I didn't know what kind of person he was. I wanted to make sure he didn't feel defensive by my letter, but like understood how much he had affected my life. So as I started Googling him, trying to figure out what kind of person he was, I found an article that said he was, he had given a player a one game suspension for a domestic violence conviction. And I clicked on that reporter and I was like, this happened to me in 1998. Coach Mike Riley is not the best guy in football. How dare he? he has a daughter and just kind of vented in an angry email. 
And that reporter contacted me and said, do you want to talk? And I said, yeah, I do. And then I, I subsequently found out that was John Cazano. And he said, um, he said, I'll, I'll help you meet coach Riley if you want to do that. But if you want to share your story, I'll, I'll share your story. And I, and I decided at that moment to share my story and that's how it all happened. <laughs> yeah. Now, and, but, but even beyond sharing the story, I mean, you tell this story in front of, uh, big audiences in front of teams. I do. Uh, just first and foremost, where, where have you found that public speaking ability? Did you are, did you always have it? Where has it developed over time? Oh no, I did not always have it. And I hadn't actually planned on doing that. Um, the speaking thing kind of just happened. Um, you know, I came forward with my story and coach Riley was part of the story, obviously. Cause I talked about how, you know, how much his words had hurt me. I, you know, I hate, I held onto those words. These are good guys and made a bad choice for those 16 years. They really, they stuck with me and they haunted me and they tortured me because I didn't understand how gang rape was just a bad choice and how he could minimize my life to nothing. Um, so he actually commented on the story when it ran, he hit the message boards and commented and said, if you wanted to come to Oregon state and speak to my team and I would love to meet you. And I didn't go. And then he ended up going to Nebraska and I thought I missed my opportunity to speak to him because I didn't know why he would, you know, reach out to me again. Because I didn't, I didn't know originally if he was just saying that because he felt like he had to because I had come forward. Um, but he continued to reach out to me from Nebraska. And so um, in the summer of 2016, I went and I met him. And I told him how I felt about him and how he had affected my life. And then I spoke to the Husker team. And that story went viral. And then um, another school called. And I and I was like, okay, I'll go. <laughs> and then another school called and I was like, okay, I'll go. <laughs> and then it just turned into this speaking career. I had no idea what happened. It, it wasn't intentional. Just schools started calling and I started accepting and saying yes. And now we're, you know, just over two years out and I do this full time. Now, when you tell this story in front of teams, I have a two part question here. The yeah. first is, is it at all triggering? I mean, you're yes. standing in front of a Absolutely. football team telling this story. 100%. It's oh, tearing just, open the wound every time. Yeah, every time. Oh. Yeah, it's it's brutal and for all of us in the room. That's my, my second question is, what what is the experience like in terms of the players and how they respond to you? I'm sure it varies school to school, yeah. but generally, what, what is the experience? Well, I have to tell you, you know, when I, when I started doing this, um, I made a decision um, – Pretty, pretty almost almost immediately um, that I would never be a speaker that sounded like I was reading from a book about another person, that it was really important for me to go back into my trauma and share it with the audience because I needed them to connect with me. And I, and I knew that was the only way I could really humanize myself was to, to take them through that trauma. So I, I share my story in really, really graphic, awful detail. It's extremely triggering for me every time. Um, it's, it's really hard and everyone is uncomfortable. I'm, I'm crying. I'm uncomfortable. Um, the, the audience, the guys are, you know, sometimes they look down, sometimes they're teary eyed and crying. Um, they hide their faces and their shirts sometimes. Um, they're very affected also. All of us are extremely uncomfortable. Um, but then I start talking about, you know, my activism and the things I do now and that the mood changes. So we literally, and I literally go through probably every possible human emotion there is in like an hour. I, I mean, I'm literally like, I'm crying. I'm upset. I'm like <laughs> trying to control my breathing and then, you know, feeling like I want to throw up and then I'm, you know, I'm smiling and I'm engaging with them. It's, it's pretty crazy. It's a very intense hour for all of us. 
Now, I, I've done this a couple of times myself, like been brought in to speak about rape and rape culture to football teams um, at some schools, high school, college level. And my experience when we get to the, the dialogue, you know, the Q&A part, yeah. is that there there is a, a cluelessness about concepts like affirmative consent, cluelessness about binge drinking and its role in these things. And is that, is that your experience as well, that there there's almost like a bewilderment about their role in this? Or what, what, what do you get back when you do the dialogue? Well, I would say one of the things that's really interesting about, you know, the talks that I do is, you know, we go through the hard part. I share my story. And then before I get to the dialogue, though, I say to them, before I make the transition, I always say, you know, please listen to what I'm about to say. If you've heard nothing else I've said today, please listen to this. And then I say to them, I'm not here because I think you're the problem. I'm here because I know that you're the solution. And I explain to them why I know that they're the solution. And you see, and, and at that moment when I say that, they all kind of lean in and they're like, what is she going to say? And that is when I start my part of the dialogue. And it's interesting that um, I would say like 99% of the, the guys I work with have never had a woman stand in front of them and say that. They've never had a woman stand in front of them and say, I think you're the solution. Here's how I need us to work together. Here's how, why I need you to be involved. Um, so they don't get defensive or anything. They're engaged. And so we have this dialogue, but there is a lot of, yes, misconceptions. There's a lot of like, what, (laughs) huh? (laughs) So you'd really do see their mind ticking. You see them thinking about things differently. I get a lot of guys that message me and like, oh, you know, I used to be that person that said it happened a long time ago. Get over it. But now I, I understand what you're saying. Like you have helped me, you know, understand my my family members and my friends more. You help me understand why someone doesn't report. You help me understand like so many different things that they really hadn't thought about or concepts or like you said, consent, ongoing assent, or consent, right? It's not just one time we're going to do this, but it's like, ongoing for for every action. Um, so, yeah, I, I suppose there is. I don't I hate to call it cluelessness because I feel like that's kind of negative. But there is a lot of, I think there's a lack of education, a lack of awareness. And I think that we're just not having the discussions and the conversations that we need to be having. And some of this I think happens because a lot of times we come in and we speak to our young men in a way that they already kind of feel defensive because we're not coming Mm -hmm. in and we're not coming in and saying you're the solution. Let's talk about consent. We're we're saying like, you know, we're kind of wagging our fingers at them. And then trying to tell them something and, and they're not receiving it. So maybe we've had some of these conversations, but they're not able to receive the message. And they're not able to kind of process it. Um, that kind of thing. Do you get the, I'm wondering if because you do that, you get less of, first of all, I think that's brilliant. I'm going to incorporate that every time I, I speak now, because what, what I get sometimes, and I'm wondering if you've gotten this, uh, is that sort of embattled. Well, it's the men who are under attack yes. because we're being falsely accused. Or, right. I don't, you know, I don't They get seem that. to think that that's yeah. ec- epidemic or something. Yeah, I don't, I don't get that myself in my sessions because of the way I approach them. So I, I don't get that. But I see it everywhere. And I hear about how other people get it. And I, and I think it's because, you know, you know, I talk about the fact that it's, you know, it's about 10% of our male population doing these things which means that 90% of our guys are good and they're not doing these things. The problem is that the 90% though can be complicit in their silence. They can be complicit in their inaction. Um, Some guys are like, you know what? I don't rape women. I don't beat women. Why is this my issue? And I'm like, well, here's the thing. 
if women could stop sexual violence, we would have already done it. I would not exist as a rape survivor. The women before me would have taken care of it. Women alone cannot stop sexual violence. We've been trying. The 10% of the men committing these crimes are not going to stop it. So who does that leave? That leaves the 90% of the guys that wouldn't. And those guys need to start checking each other, need to hold each other accountable, need to align themselves with women who have been doing this work, right? Learn from us. Um, let's work together to push back on that 10%. Um, so when I come to them from that angle, it really opens up the dialogue. They're not defensive. They're not trying to figure out a way to prove me wrong. They're not, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it works. It works. And I wish that more people would do that and approach our young men this way because they want to be part of this. They want to help. They want to get involved. They want to be um, ambassadors, you know, for my campaign. They want to be active. I mean, I've seen the activism across the country with these different teams. They want to do this stuff. They just haven't been invited. They haven't been asked to the table. Yeah, let, let's talk about that campaign. Set the expectation. What is it? What are its goals? Who have you gotten involved in it? And how can people get involved? So originally when I started speaking, I like probably the first, I don't know, five schools I went to, um, I immediately became aware that some coaches were standing in front of the room and saying to their team, your behavior matters. If you harm another person, you're not playing for me. Like I'm drawing the line in the sand with you. They, they were having conversations about manhood, respecting women, consent. They were doing these things with their players, right? And then there were other coaches that were not having these conversations. They were recruiting violent athletes, harboring them, covering up for them. You know, we've seen all the news stories. And so in the very beginning, I was like, how do I get these coaches on the same page? Because I understand the power of a coach. I understand their influence to, like, have this authority over a culture and whether it's good or bad. And so in an effort for me to figure out how to get them all on the same page, I started a pledge. And I remember as I was doing the pledge, I was like, what do I want to call it? And I was like, well, and I was thinking like, Brenda, what do you want these coaches to do? And I was like, I just want them to set the expectation that sexual assault and physical violence is never okay. And that's how the, <laughs> the name came. Um, and so I, I got a pledge together and I put in, you know, attaching eligibility to behavior. Um, and then I put another section in there where like if coaches were uncomfortable talking about consent or, or being a bystander or manhood, I put a few things in there that they could talk about, right? Sports is something I do. It's not who I am. Um, no means no, only yes means yes. Um, I will stand up to, you know, sexism and, you know, do my part, that kind of thing. And so I put this pledge together and then, um, some teams started signing it and then it kind of, it was Stanford actually. They were the first football team to sign the pledge when it came out. And then they were the first team to, to say, let's do, let's raise awareness too. Let's do more. Let's use a game to raise awareness and honor survivors. And so we did that. And then, so it's just become this whole big campaign and set the expectations now a nonprofit. Um, I'm working on policy. Like it's just become this huge thing. And that started April, 2017. It's been a very short period of time, but um, a lot has happened. A lot of, a lot of schools have become involved. Yeah, the image of Stanford football players marching with set the expectation t-shirts. I mean, it took behind uh, Coach Shaw. Took my breath away. <laughs> that was amazing, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that 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 and that is like that embodies everything that I want to see with this set the expectation campaign. I mean, our coaches have so much influence and so much power and Coach Shaw is doing exactly the right thing and that photo me too. Like I get chills every time I see it because I'm just like that's exactly what I what we need more of in this country. 
Now, I'd be remiss in this interview if I didn't ask your reaction to everything that's happened over the last several weeks with yeah. Judge Brett Kavanaugh and uh, Christine, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. Um, just first and foremost, what has been the experience like for you watching this along with the rest of the country? Well, I think as with many survivors in this country, millions of us, um, men and women, all walks of life, right? Because anyone could be the victim of sexual violence. Um, I think it's 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 been hard. I mean, so many things have, have been brought up for me, so many feelings. Um, there's so many triggering moments. You know, when you hear people say, like, it, it happened a long time ago, get over it. I've been talking about that for years. Like, that's one of the worst things you can say to a survivor. Um, so for me, it's been really hard. But at the same time, these are the things that actually fire me up even more. They make me feel like, Brenda, you know what? You got to keep going. You cannot stop. I, I know you're tired. I know you're hurt. I know you feel defeated, but you got to push past that and just do it. Like you got to keep on going. You have men out there who are responding. You have men out there who understand it's not okay to say to a survivor, it happened a long time ago, get over it. And, and you're reaching people and you just got to keep going. And so, um, I am more resolute. Um, my resolve has deepened during this time. Um, even though my heart is breaking for, for myself, for, for every other survivor in this country. Um, and, and it's interesting that today I'm at Stanford and they're having a set the expectation game tonight. And Dr. Blasey Ford worked here. Um, and we're also most likely, you know, nominating Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme court today. And so for me, that's a lot of emotion today for me. Um, but I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing after that vote than to go to a football stadium with a team where there's, you know, 10,000 T-shirts that they created that say set the expectation and have a team honoring survivors today. I think that it's incredible timing. Um, and I, I feel fortunate to, to be here today and be part of this uh, activism today. It's pretty deep. Please tweet. Please tweet photos. Please yes, do all of that. I will be. I will be. I actually have someone here with me today doing some video. Um, I was like, you have to come. We have to document this. Um, and so we'll be putting out some videos and things. But today is a really um, it's a really special day. And I hope I hope that survivors know that, you know, there's people out here fighting for you. We believe you. We're here for you. Um, this this is not over. Don't give up. Let's, we got to keep going. Wow. And you know, as far as Brett Kavanaugh goes, I, I I don't know about you, but I just I heard so much in his story, um, and in the story of Doctor Ford, or you have sports, binge drinking on his on his part, yeah, male bonding and misogyny, like the way that male yes. bonding and misogyny that that connects with what you're combating. Did did you hear those echoes as well? I absolutely did, and that and and knowing what I know. And being in this sports culture, being a former athlete, having sons that are athletes, like everything that he said, just it, it gave way to a foundation of that happened, because that's the that's the culture that 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 is and was. So there's really just it just everything that she said made a lot of sense to me. It I connected a lot of dots, um, and I I know that some people didn't, but it. I, yeah, it all made sense to me what she said. I found her to be very believable. Um, I, I do believe her, and I and I think that 
I, I, I think it happened. I do. And, and part of the reason I think it happened is because we look at, like you said, the drinking, the misogyny, the sports culture, um, the bonding, um, you know, people are, it's interesting because so many people are, are so, um, misinformed and they don't know about these things, but people were, when the gang rape stuff started coming up around Brett Kavanaugh, um, people were like, Oh, if that happens, somebody will report somebody will say something. I'm like, um, no. And, and actually within, within sports, like fraternity cultures, football cultures, gang rape is a pretty common thing. It's, it's kind of, it's a way that, um, men bond It's it's kind of a team bonding thing and it happens more than people think. Um, and it's not reported. And, and I know that was the case for me. I mean, these men were, were taking turns raping me and they were high-fiving each other and laughing. And I remember feeling like it was a team bonding exercise for them. And I've heard that multiple, multiple times. It is a reality. It is something that happens and we don't want to believe that it could happen. But my story is proof. These things happen and I am not the only one. There are many Brenda Tracy's out there and we need to start having a conversation about these things are happening because people don't want to think they happen. And so it's easy to disbelieve the survivor because you don't want to believe that people we know or, you know, good kids, good athletes would do these things, but it's happening. So is sports culture inherently a part of rape culture, or do you think sports can also be used as a weapon against rape culture? Oh, it absolutely can be used as a weapon against it. And it's interesting that, you know, sometimes I think we think that, you know, most rape that happens on our campuses is from athletes, and that's that's not true. Um, athletes do make up a small percentage of a campus, and their rates of, of, of rape are a little are higher. Um, but some of that has to do with kind of, you know, some of this, you know, male group type stuff, right? Because we see, we see rates of rape, like within, you know, football, fraternities, military, you know, big groups of men. Um, but we absolutely can, can change that narrative. And that's what I do, right? Because on our campuses, it's interesting that, you know, you don't hear about the rape report from the chess club president, but you hear about it from the quarterback. And that, those are the stories we see in the news. And so really, what we learn about perpetrators and what we learn about victims comes through the lens of sports and these sports stories. That's how we're learning about this culture. That's how we're learning about victims and perpetrators. And so for me, it's important to take the power of sports and and change that narrative. So when people are like, Oh, Brenda targets athletes and men, I'm like, yeah, I do because, (laughs) because I'm targeting the 90% of the good guys and I'm targeting the athletes because they're the ones that are in the news. They're the ones that are shaping these news stories um, this is where we're learning from. So yeah, of course I'm, I'm going to work smarter, not harder. I'm going to go to the 90%. I'm going to go to the athletes because they have that stage to change this narrative. And that's what I talk to those teams about, and they know their influence and their stage. Stanford knows that coach Shaw knows that. So I haven't spoken to the entire student body at Stanford. I went, you know, in 2017, spoke to the team. They had their first game. They're having their second game today. And what I've learned is exactly what I said. I said to them, you have the tri- trickle down effect. You have the influence and power. Every People are going to follow you. And this year I've heard from everyone, all kinds of, you know, different departments want to be involved. What are you guys doing? More People are coming to the game that aren't even football fans. They just want to support the campaign. So everything that I said is true. And if, if teams would, would do what I'm asking them to do, it'll happen. It, it, it fans out from the football team into the entire campus and the culture. 
And one last question. I'd also be remiss if I didn't ask you, like we just passed the one-year anniversary of the Me Too movement, and you were doing Me Too before Me Too. Yeah. uh, yeah. Or I should say before the explosion of the movement. Uh, Yeah. And has, has seeing that grow and has seeing some of the people like Les Moonves, Harvey Weinstein go down, um, ha- has this provided some sense of validation? Like, yes, I was right to speak up. Or, I'm a part of something that's changing society or perhaps not. I'm curious what your reaction has been. I mean, it must have been almost surreal to see this thing grow after you've been speaking about this for several years. Yeah, it is. And, and I think that I, the Me Too movement um, is funny because people think it's about taking down men, which is, which is wrong, right? The Me Too movement is really about um, survivors, supporting survivors, believing them, allowing them to you know, get rid of the shame in a way that they can share their stories publicly. Um, and we did start holding perpetrators accountable, but that's not the, the, it, the, the intent of the Me Too movement to just take down people. But it is important that we hold perpetrators accountable. And I've been happy to see perpetrators being held accountable. I've been excited to see how many survivors have come forward. Um, the sad thing for me is that, you know, with every movement, there's a counter movement. So we're, we're hearing like the president say, it's a scary time for men. Um, you know, and, and you can just, anybody can say anything and ruin a man's life. Um, this isn't true. These are all false narratives that are being put out there. This isn't the case. And I think for me, I feel like my message is even more important right now, especially seeing this counter movement come up against survivors, that men understand like you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And I'm I'm here to be someone that wants to align myself with you. Like this isn't man versus woman, right? This isn't, um, you know, all women lie and all men don't or whatever. This is this shouldn't be a divisive issue. Like we all need to, to work together to push back against the perpetrators. So um I, I hope that we will start having that discussion too, because I see a lot of divisiveness on this issue right now. And it's really sad to me. Wow. And I, I, one last question. I ask this of everybody who comes on the show, um, and I assume it plays a part in your life just in terms of uh keep it moving forward and mental wellness. What kind of music do you listen to? What gets you through? Oh, what gets me through? Um, I listen to a lot of different types of music, but um, it, I guess it just depends. I, it depends on my mood and what I need because music is a huge thing for me right now. So um, I love Beyonce. <laughs> I think that she's like just this like unashamed female and she's so powerful. Um, so I, I love her. She's always on my playlist. Um, what else is on my playlist right now? I have a, cu- a couple Cardi B songs on there. I like dollars. I like diamonds. I like stunning. I like shining. I like million dollar deals. Where's my pen? Bitch, I'm signing. I like those Balenciagas. Um, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm mostly women. I mostly listen to women. Um, on, on my, on my, um, yeah. Cardi I have, an B. I have some Cardi B on there. I have You and some- my 10 year old son. Avril, I have some Avril Lavigne, some Beyonce. <laughs> I have a lot of music that is just kind of women just being really strong and focused and, and uh, you know, living life no matter what. Like, no matter what gets you down, just keep going. And it's okay to be a woman. It's okay, you know, it's okay to be you and not not be ashamed and be strong, be independent and, and love it. And so I listen to I listen to a lot of that. Awesome. Hey, Brenda Tracy, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was, it was great to talk to you. You as well. That was Brenda Tracy. We'll be back 
right after this message. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe and now back to the edge of sports podcast no matter where we face we must face the moment of truth baby and now i've got some choice words about a true athlete activist a true social warrior for struggle in the world of sports eric reed okay look The most iconic sports image of our times is Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem to protest police violence and racial inequity over the course of the 2016 season. Often those photos are framed with just Kaepernick, as if he's shouldering this burden alone. But when the photographer or their photo editor deigns to pull back, there is always one player consistently kneeling alongside of him. That player is free safety Eric Reed. NFL fans know Eric Reed as a top-caliber safety, someone who was a first-round draft pick who made the Pro Bowl in 2013. People following the intersection of sports and politics further learned about Reed this offseason as, like Kaepernick during the previous summer, he found himself suspiciously unsigned and ignored, something that could only be read as a kind of punishment for Reed's insistence on kneeling during the 2017 season and his vocal support of Kaepernick's message. Reed then joined his quote-unquote brother, Kaepernick, in a collusion lawsuit against the league. Yet this past week, at long last, Reed has been signed by the Carolina Panthers. It took a change of ownership from the repellent Jerry Richardson, forced out of the league for racist comments and sexual harassment, to David Tepper, someone who believes that his players should have the right to free expression. But Reed is employed, and this is worth celebrating. Also worth celebrating is Reed's opening press conference with the team, where he showed that he will neither stop speaking out for social justice nor telling uncomfortable truths. Wearing an I'm with Cap t-shirt, Reed was asked why he has chosen to be an outspoken political athlete. He responded not with cliches or a quick soundbite, but by using the podium to break down 400 years of systemic racial oppression. This is what he said. I'll put it this way. Next year will be 2019. It'll mark 400 years since the first slaves touched the soil in this country. That's 400 years of systemic oppression. That's slavery, Jim Crow, new Jim Crow, mass incarceration. Um, You name it, the Great Depression. They come out with a new deal. Black people didn't have access to those government stimulus packages. The new deal set up what is known as the modern-day middle class. We didn't have access to those programs, the GI Bill. Social Security, home loans, none of that. So this has been happening since my people have gotten here. And so I just felt the need to say something about it. Damn. Eric Reed also made clear that the issue which animated the original protests 
police violence and the gap between what this nation promises and what it delivers would continue to be front and center for both Kaepernick and himself. He said, So we're going to continue to talk about it and continue to hold America to the standard that it says on paper, that we're all created equal, because it's not that way right now. We're going to keep pushing towards that. I'm a black man in America. I grew up black in America. You cannot tell me that what I've experienced isn't true. He then, in reference to both Amjean, who was killed by a Dallas police officer in his apartment, said, you can't live in your own house in America without getting killed. Reed was also asked about the Players Coalition, a group of NFL players led by Philadelphia Eagle Malcolm Jenkins that has access to $89 million of ownership money to pursue community programs. This deal was widely seen, although Jenkins denies it, as a quid pro quo to stop protesting. Reed, who left the Players Coalition last season, called it out as, quote, an NFL-funded subversion group. Oh, and Eric Reed also said that even though he had signed with Carolina, he would be continuing his collusion lawsuit against the National Football League. I remember meeting Eric Reed at one of Colin Kaepernick's Know Your Rights camps. He was shy, soft-spoken, and fiercely intelligent. To see him open up and express that intelligence on this stage is to see in one person the personification of an entire generation of athletic protest. It was stunning and a vindication of the ways that struggle can change people in fundamental and organic ways. As Reed said, I will keep speaking for my people. The name Eric Reed is not spoken in the same tones with which we mentioned Colin Kaepernick, but perhaps it should be. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down, where we hand out the awards. The Just Stand Up Award Stand up. goes to somebody who I do a radio show with on WPFW. Uh, his name is Atan Thomas. He played in the NBA for 10 years. And we did our show this week, and Atan Thomas spoke out forcefully uh, for survivors of sexual assault. He spoke out forcefully for the importance of us judging everybody with the same circumspection when these accusations come to light from not just the people like Donald Trump but also liberal heroes like Keith Ellison and Al Franken he talked about the importance of us standing with women and believing women also just stand up up. goes to Allie Raisman uh, US gymnast because one thing she did was she put on her Twitter feed this two minute section of Lady Gaga talking to Stephen Colbert people might have heard this but it's worth hearing again and so I appreciate Allie Raisman big time for putting this out there and making it public and putting it on her feed Uh, so hopefully folks in the sports world heard it but this is Lady Gaga speaking about sexual assault but I will, I will tell you something, because I am a sexual assault survivor. And the truth is that, you know, like, Trump the other day was, 
speaking in a rally, and he said she has no memory of how she got to the party. You know, should we trust that she remembers the assault? And the answer is yes. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly why. And I also know that this woman is smart because she's a psychologist. She's no dummy. If someone is assaulted or experiences trauma, there's science and scientific proof. It's biology that people change. The brain changes. And literally, what it does is it takes the trauma and it puts it in a box and it files it away and shuts it so that we can survive the pain. And it also does a lot of other things. It can cause body pain. It can cause, you know, baseline elevations in anxiety. It can cause complete avoidance of wanting to even remember or think about what happened to you. But what I believe that I have seen is that when this woman saw that Judge Kavanaugh was going to be possibly put in the highest position of power in the judicial system of this country, she was triggered. And that box opened. And when that box opened, she was brave enough to share it with the world to protect this country. On the just sit down approach. Sit your ass down. I, I mean, I gotta give it to the sports world. Like, as a whole, I couldn't believe the amount of silence that came out about Christine Blasey Ford, her testimony, Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, where were people in the sports world standing up to rape culture this week? I'm not just talking about male athletes who need to step up. I'm talking about female athletes. I'm talking about every athlete. I mean, I was combing social media looking for somebody to say, I believe survivors, for somebody to come out to a demonstration, for somebody to speak out. And you just didn't see it there. And I'm, I'm honestly trying to analyze in my own head why that was the case, why they stayed so far away from this particular case. And it honestly, it hurts my heart because we are in this new generation of political athletes. So there's like a choice about what to speak out about and what not to speak out about. And to have heard athletes say something this week, I mean, it would have been very welcome. Very welcome indeed. Well, that's all for this week's episode of Edge of Sports. Thank you so much to my producer. Thank you so much to everybody who listens to the show. Thank you to The Nation Magazine, the sponsor of the show. Thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon. You can support the show, too, at patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Please, if you like the show, go to iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. And don't only subscribe, but leave a rating, write a little comment. All that stuff makes a big difference in various algorithms that I don't understand. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.